I spent most of this past week in Fort Worth, Texas for a minister's meeting. Uh, and since I went to TCU for undergrad, uh, it's always good to be back in Fort Worth. In fact, it's been a number of years since I was there. Uh, but most of my friends from college live in Dallas and uh, Austin and Fort Worth. And so getting to see them uh, was just a, a bonus of the trip. But it was also good to be with ministers, uh, disciples ministers from around the country. We gather every January in different parts of the country to meet, and uh, it was a good trip. But when you go back to a place where you went to college, uh, it brings back all kinds of, of memories and, and all kinds of emotions. Um, and telling old stories and reminiscing with your friends is a lot of fun. But, but TCU uh, has really grown and changed a lot. And I mean a lot uh, since I went there. It's, uh, it's remarkable. There are new buildings everywhere, new restaurants. There are new neighborhoods in, in Fort Worth. And so one of the questions that I had for um, my friends was this. What do you know now in life that you wish you had known when we graduated from TCU? And so I'd pose that question to you this morning. What, what, what do you know now in your life that you wish you had known when you were finishing college? Or maybe if, uh, if you're in high school, maybe you wish you'd known when you were a teenager before you went to college. And so we had this conversation and there were lots of uh, interesting answers that were given, some serious, some not so serious. But it's, uh, I think it's very important that we reflect upon things like that and that we share wisdom with the younger generations. That's one reason I enjoy uh, teaching. Um, at Vanderbilt is getting to share things that I've learned in my life with uh, younger students and um, and I think that having a multi-generational church like we have that we don't take the time to pass along that kind of wisdom from one generation to the next and so I, I pose that question to you to think about today that's your lunch question for later we're studying John's gospel and today we come to chapter 3 where a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus. And he begins by flattering Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a good teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus responds by saying, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of heaven without being born of water and spirit. And Nicodemus is confused. And so Jesus clarifies what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. If I were to ask you to explain to me your understanding of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, and how it is present in your life, what would you say? If I were to ask you, if you have been born again as a Christian, what would you say? Some of you might say you have been born again, and you could point to a particular day or night or event where that happened. Now, many of you might say that you have not been born again, but you've been a Christian your entire life, and, and maybe that kind of language makes you a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit uneasy. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Frederick Beekner, and somebody came up to Frederick Beekner once time, one, one time, he was a Presbyterian minister, but really a, an author, and they said, uh, Mr. Beekner, have you been born again? 
And you know how he answered it. He said, let me tell you something. I've been born again and again and again and again. And the truth is, I think that that's the case for many of us. I think many of us sell the power of the Holy Spirit short, maybe because we don't understand it or maybe because we can't explain it. But what Jesus is talking about here is to have something radical happen to the soul to where it feels like you have been born again. A new life has started that's different from your old life. You're not the same. You're changed. You've been transformed. You know, oftentimes this will happen to people after they have been through a really uh, difficult life situation. Um, a divorce. Or they've overcome an addiction. Or they've lost a, a spouse. Or they've lost a job. Life presents us with many different opportunities to start over. And whether or not we seize those opportunities is up to us. Life is a constant sequence of new chapters. And change is constant. Being back with guys that I went to school with 20 plus years ago and to see how much they've changed is just a reminder that change in life is constant. Now later on in John's gospel, and we'll get to this part uh, in a few weeks, but during what is known as the farewell discourse, Jesus says this, he says, I've said these things to you while I am still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. From this, we can conclude that if we want to experience peace in life, then we need to connect with the Holy Spirit. We need to tap into the power of the Spirit. But, but what is that and how do we do that? How does it change us? The truth of the matter is there are all kinds of different Christians and different Christian traditions. Some traditions lift up the role of the Holy Spirit and others are not so sure. Generally speaking, mainline Protestants have somewhat dismissed it because we can't explain it. We can't completely understand it. And I think that that's unfortunate. One of my favorite questions to, um, to ask a small group or a Bible study is this, why are you a Christian? Followed by what difference does Christ make in your life? And can you articulate that? And as you might imagine, people will give all kinds of answers. They'll say, well, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. I'm a Christian because that's what good people do in Nashville, right? I'm a Christian because Jesus died for my sins. I'm a Christian because... I care about other people. I'm a Christian because I, I want to go to heaven one day when I die. None of these answers is wrong. And I think it's an important question for all of us to wrestle with in a culture where many people are often Christians just because that's what's expected. But real faith is supposed to change us, transform us, and not leave us the same as we were before. New Testament scholar Marcus Borg 
uh, passed away uh, a, a number of years ago now, but his final book that he wrote was a book called Convictions. And in that book, he identified five different categories of Christians. And I always have found these fascinating. The first category he called conservative Christians, who believe that the Bible is the literal, infallible, inerrant word of God. Conservative Christians believe that how we live here and now will determine where we spend eternity, that Jesus died to pay for our sins, and that the only way to heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ. Conservative Christians are often very interested in moral issues like abortion, issues of sexuality, and living the moral life. Often things like drinking and smoking and gambling uh, are concerns of many conservative Christians. The second category he calls conventional Christians, which represent the Christian middle. Conventional Christians have often been Christians their entire lives. They're not as committed to biblical inerrancy and doctrinal orthodoxy as conservative Christians, but they are certainly very familiar with church language and church tradition. The third category he calls uncertain Christians. These folks are unsure what to make of certain conventional and conservative Christian teachings. They ask questions like, is the Bible the literal word of God and is it inerrant? Was Jesus really born of a virgin? Did he really perform all of the miracles that we find in the Gospels? Did Jesus have to die for our sins? Is Christianity the only way to salvation? But despite asking these questions and sometimes not knowing the answers, uncertain Christians continue to be a part of the church. Then he talks about former Christians. And these are people who have left the church for whatever reason. This group often considers themselves spiritual but not religious. And for many of them, they have left because the version of Christianity that they learned growing up is no longer convincing. But many still hang on to the periphery of the church, especially around high holy days like Christmas and Easter, Mother's Day. Finally, Borg talks about progressive Christians. And generally speaking, progressive Christians reject the concept of biblical inerrancy and literal interpretation, but still believe that the Bible speaks God's truth. Salvation is primarily about transformation in this world and not just about life after death. Jesus is the decisive revelation of God, God in human form. Believing is not as important as transformation, being changed. And many progressive Christians are found in certain mainline churches. Now, just like there are all kinds of uh, churches in a town like Nashville, there are also all kinds of different Christians. And what's important is not necessarily which category you would put yourself in of those five or maybe a hybrid of some of those, but what's important is whether or not you allow your faith to change your life and whether or not you leave room for the Holy Spirit to move. My question this morning, in light of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, is this. What does it mean, what does it mean to take the Christian life seriously? What does it mean, in the words of Frederick Buechner, to be born again and again and again? What is God doing in your life right now, and are you paying attention, or are you distracted and in a zone? After his conversion, the Apostle Paul took his Christian life seriously. He was born again. He was changed. And his many epistles are evidence of this. In Romans, which is the closest thing that we have uh, to Paul's 
theological platform. If you think about it, many of Paul's letters were uh, intended for specific audiences where he was addressing specific questions. But Romans is kind of like his general theological epistle. But he says this. He says, this is what the Christian life looks like. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. I'll do one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. And if possible, he says, live peaceably with all. In Galatians, Paul names the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so when I am experiencing these things in my life, I feel spiritually grounded. But when I'm not, I know that something is off. Now, in light of this dialogue that Jesus has with Nicodemus, I want to share with you this morning what I think it means to take the Christian life seriously and to allow the Holy Spirit to move in your heart and to transform you and to not leave you the same. So a few thoughts that I'll leave you with. The first is this. We must worship and pray regularly to develop a relationship with God. Sounds obvious, right? So what's the problem? God is a mystery. And not everybody has the same understanding or experience of God. You know, uh, you know how I think you know when you've developed a healthy relationship with God? It's when you can be by yourself, alone with God, away from others, away from technology, and you can be completely satisfied and at peace. This does not mean that you cannot experience God around others, but you must be able to know God and experience God by yourself and on your own, where nobody else can distract you, and you can cultivate that relationship on your own. It's unique, and prayer is one of the best ways that we connect with God, where we, we talk and we listen and we reflect and we are quiet. So for you, God might be the old man in the sky, um, or God might be a different type of force where you, you would just say, like uh, Paul says in Acts, it's in God that we live and move and have our being. There's nowhere we can go where God isn't, but we must all wrestle with and cultivate our own relationship with God. And that takes effort. Second thought, we must develop a personal relationship with Christ by reading and studying his words and his teachings. That's why we are preaching through John's gospel in this new year. We need to look at what Jesus said and what he did. And you cannot read the gospels once and for all. You must continue to read them over and over again throughout your life. Paul's letters will only make sense once you have read the Gospels and you are familiar with the life and teachings of Jesus. Then you will know what Paul is talking about and what his reference point is. Jesus calls us to love, to show mercy, to pray, to serve, to give, to heal, to forgive, and to be peaceful. A relationship with Christ, like any other relationship in life, takes time and it takes intentionality. And if you take Jesus seriously, then you will be challenged and you will find yourself uncomfortable in many ways. And that's okay. Third thought. We're called to care for the poor and the outcasts. 
the marginalized and the downtrodden. When you read the Gospels, it becomes clear that Jesus cared for the poor and the outcast, and he calls us to do the same. He says in Matthew 25, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. This means get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your bubble. Don't just hang around affluent people all the time. Go out on the food truck. Go to the Morgan Scott Project. Go to Guatemala. Go to Africa. Go tutor at Fall Hamilton. Come host room in the inn. In a few weeks, go build a habitat house. You cannot be a genuine Christian and always just be around the people that are just like you. Jesus commands us to care for the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts and we must do this both as individuals and also as a church. And there's so many opportunities at Woodmont to do this. So many opportunities for you to plug in to our community efforts to give back and to make a difference. And this is what it means to be missional, not just to talk about it, but to go out and do that. And some people say, you know, I'm not really comfortable doing that. And Jesus would probably say, well, good. <laughs> You're not supposed to be comfortable all the time. That's not what life is about. There's a time to be comfortable and there's a time to push yourself. They say good preachers will comfort the afflicted, which is really important, but also afflict the comfortable. And so serving the poor and the marginalized should not be optional. It's a part of loving our neighbor as ourselves, as Jesus commanded us to do. Fourth thought, and this one's important because many people miss this. We must learn to be kind. There's more to being a Christian than just being kind, but so much of, of it starts with kindness. The prophet Micah asked the question, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God? If you're kind, you cannot be angry, you cannot be cruel, you cannot be hostile. Kindness is one of those fruits of the Spirit, but so many other fruits come directly from it. And it's amazing how far just being kind in life will get you. Treating other people with respect, no matter who they are. Kindness and love go hand in hand. Paul writes in Romans 13, he says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments can be summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, this implies that you must first love and care for yourself, not in some weird narcissistic way, but in a healthy way where you take care of yourself, where you look out uh, for your own well-being, uh, where you do self-care is what I'm saying. It always amazes me how many Christians there are in this world who fail the kindness test. And I really think that many of them just don't realize how they come across Kindness makes all the difference. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that you are part of a religion that is based on love if you cannot be kind. If you can't be civil, cordial, nice, even during an election year, even during an impeachment trial. Are there times when we get frustrated and impatient and angry and irritable? Yes. Are there times when others hurt us and do us wrong and betray us? Yes. But you can never go wrong with learning what it means to be kind. People will forget what you said and they will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Lastly this morning, 
If we seek to take the Christian life, the life of discipleship seriously, then we must leave room, we must leave room for the Holy Spirit to work so that we can experience the new beginnings that we all need. So we must learn to ask ourselves, am I growing spiritually every day or am I moving backwards? Some will say, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not really religious, but I don't think you can actually separate those two. Being spiritual has to do with developing God's spirit within you, and religion simply organizes us in a manner that we can do that. But we have to ask the questions, am I loving? Am I joyful? Do I spread peace? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I generous? Am I faithful, gentle? Can I maintain self-control? Analyzing whether or not these virtues are present in your life will help you determine if you are growing spiritually or not. Serious Christians are not just committed to some legalistic set of rules or doctrine. You can recite creeds and you can recite scripture all day long, but it still doesn't change your life. Serious Christians must be concerned about heart and intent and motive. The way that we see the world matters, the way that we act, the way that we treat others, the way that we talk, it matters. The Spirit moves us when we carve out time for worship and prayer and Bible study and reading and service and rest and time alone. And sometimes we have to remove ourselves from our hectic schedules and retreat to a place where we can focus on our soul. There are so many pressures and stresses and challenges in life. We are pulled in so many different directions. And parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about if you're raising small children or raising children at all. But if we don't take a break, if we don't take time away, then we risk burning out and becoming absolutely exhausted. Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. What does it mean to be born from above? What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? It means that you recognize that God is at work in you and God does not want to leave you the same or where you are right now. And because of God's love for this world, he sent his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And that, my friends, is the gospel in one verse. Amen.